Please be seated. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. Once again, as we continue uh, in our study, not only of this gospel written by the Apostle John for the reason, as he said, that those who read it might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and therefore uh, be blessed. Uh, But also we come to the second part of a specific interaction, uh, Jesus interacting with a Samaritan woman at a well in the middle of a village in Samaria. We began looking at this passage last week, and we recognized certain truths that were recorded uh, that were stunning for the early readers, and the same truths are important for us as we live today. The primary thing that we noted from those first 15 verses is this, is that Jesus Christ knocks down every barrier that would prevent anyone who is in need from being able to hear and receive God's grace that comes to us through his gift of Jesus Christ himself. He gives himself so that we may be reconciled to God and receive every single blessing. He broke down geographic barriers, social barriers, relational barriers in order that he might encounter uh, people. And we see that same truth is what we who are believers have already been blessed by. And in that conversation, Jesus said that he's offering himself. He talked about the living water, which is a metaphor for our salvation that comes from him and the deposit of the Holy Spirit that, unique to any other religion in the world, reminds us that the living and true God, who is distinct from us, is also deposited within and dwells within through his Spirit in those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Others may be inspirational from example But God dwells within those who belong to him and begins a renewal work that is on the inside and then manifests itself to the outside. We stopped in the middle of that because it's an incredibly pregnant uh, passage and there are several applications that we take from it. So the first was the foundation of understanding the living water is our life in Christ. It is the clear declaration of the gospel promise. And we pick up again with that understanding uh, towards the end of the conversation. Jesus has talked about the living water. Uh, the, the woman is grasping, uh, certainly not exhaustively, but grasping what he is saying. She is excited. They're continuing conversation. And we pick that up in verse 16 this morning. John 4, verse 16. Jesus said to the woman, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit And truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, 
he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The word of our God. Let's go to our God in prayer that he may speak to us and bless us through this word he's given us. Father, we do come with this time committed to you. Not only do we lend our ears, but our minds and our hearts as well. For we are in need of thorough renewal. And you have promised that. That your word that we hear does not come back empty, but works and brings transformation. uh, And ultimately makes those who belong to you more like Christ. We pray that you would uh, do that in us even this hour that you would shape our understanding of you and your expectations, that we might even know ourselves better. And therefore, we come before you and allow your word to do its work within our hearts, our lives, and our relationships. Lord, by giving ourselves to you, we honor you and worship you. So may we hear what you would have us to hear in the gospel according to John. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and our King. Amen. The young family was taking a European vacation. And on the itinerary for this particular day was to take in the, the sights at one of the um, majestic European cathedrals. Uh, their son was not, to- not young, no longer a toddler, but not yet having risen to the age where you could be certain of his behavior especially when he was uh, getting a little bit bored. So they sat him down, and they began to talk with them to try to explain what was going to happen that day and what their expectations were for them. So they sat him down. They said, now today, we're going to go to God's house, so you need to be on your best behavior. A little while later, they were, took a back seat in, the, uh, in this uh, grand cathedral, And as they sat down, the father leaned over to the mother and just kind of gazing at this and said, can you you believe this chancel? And the mother looked back and said, and look at at those windows. And then after a moment, they kind of hushed and they said, shh, here comes the choir processional. And they pointed out, and then here comes the the clergy and their their march. And while they were saying that, the, the young boy then started saying, Dad, and they said, shh, dad, shh. And they realized they weren't going to get anywhere, so they turned their attention to him. And the young boy said exactly what was on his mind. He said, look, I, I get the windows and I see the people coming marching in, but where exactly is God in all of this? And you know, that's a profound question, and it's one that every one of us ought to ask, not when we enter into these grand cathedrals, but anytime we gather together with other people and in the guise of or in the name of worship. We can get easily distracted by any number of things, whether they are things that are outside of our focus in worship or even the things that are part of the worship, tools for our worship. They can capture our attention to such an extent that we may not even give God the consideration that only makes sense if you're going to take the time 
and make the effort to go worship God. You may have experienced it yourself at some point or another. You've been to a service, and then after the service, you know, you, you recognize everything was solid, everything was sound, and some of the people that you talked to were talking about things that really struck them. They, they seemed to get something out of it, whether it was the song or the prayers or the message. There was, there was just something that they really felt moved, moved, moved by. And you keep your tongue because the reality is you just felt dry. Maybe even somewhat dead inside. Whether you will ask the question or not, there is this instinctive longing to have the answer to the question, where was God in all of this? Now, if you have ever felt that way, or if you feel that way regularly, you are not alone. Pollster George Barna says that 66% of those who have ever attended a church service feel that they have had some personal encounter with God in the worship service. Now, in one sense, 66% is an encouraging number, but, you know, I'm not that bright, but it also reminds me, well, then that means one-third of the people there never, who have been, ever third people who have been in church have never experienced the presence of God in the midst of a worship service. Now, we might assume, because there are people that attend church for all sorts of reasons, and depending on how broad that category is, so he asked the question about the frequency, and he was told that of those who regularly attend church, who were there pretty much every week, about one-third, 34% on average, believe that they have had some experience of God's presence while they are worshiping. 44% uh, of the regular church attenders say that they feel that they've experienced God's presence every week. 18% of the regular church attenders say they feel God's presence um, once a month. And so in one sense, we look at that and say, well, that's pretty good. But if that's the case, then at any time a church gathers, the majority of the people are never experiencing the presence of God in their worship. So what are we doing? We're going through the motions, performing our rituals, we're putting in our time, maybe simply as an expression of our priority, and all of those things are certainly appropriate, but they miss not only the purpose of worship, but the promise of worship itself. Because the living and true God, who has called us to gather here together, who elsewhere in the scriptures declares, don't forsake the assembling with one another as we gather together for worship, has promised to be in the midst of his people and has promised to do a work in all of his people. And yet most of us are missing it. And all of us miss it some or most of the time. Now, John chapter 4 has a lot to say about worship. It's not exhaustive, but it gives us a, a tremendous framework for understanding what worship is to be. We see in this passage as Jesus is speaking, and he repeats the phrase, 
God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so spirit and truth gives us a framework of what worship ought to be. And within that framework, in this interaction that Jesus is having with this woman, we also are able to mine several principles for worship, which will enable us not only to evaluate what we do as our practices here as a church, but may even give us some points that we would look at in our own lives to figure out why it is that we may be missing God's presence in our worship no matter how sincerely we desire it and no matter how sincerely we want to believe that he has promised that we would experience him. And so as we work through this passage, my hope is that you will understand and gain a better picture of what God has promised in worship as Jesus describes it. Those principles that we get come by a variety of different names. The great Puritan writer Jeremiah Burroughs referred to it simply as gospel worship, which I think is an appropriate title for what we'll see unfolding as Jesus is interacting and and instructing this woman. A.W. Tozer calls worship the missing jewel of evangelicalism. In other words, he, without Barna's help, recognized that people were coming this great preacher of previous generation, and realized that even though people were coming, no matter how great his message may be, if people were not encountering God in their worship, they missed it, and it was, I don't want to say worthless, but they were missing a tremendous jewel. John Piper refers to the kind of worship that Jesus is describing here as the feast of Christian hedonism. Now, if you know Piper, you realize that his primary emphasis is that we ought to live our lives to glorify God by enjoying him, and we ought to pour ourselves into it. And his statement is, we want to suck as much joy out of life as we possibly can, and we find our most satisfaction and joy in the presence of God. And worship is the buffet where we go and feast, and there is no limit to how many times you can go back and how much you can take. And so he calls it the Feast of Christian Hedonism. Perhaps the simplest, and for my purposes, my favorite this morning, is just the John Stott. He just calls it, these principles, living worship, which is to be distinguished from dead worship. Now, I've heard a friend saying, talking about our theology at times, and he did mean our theology as Reformed people. He said some people are dead right. Sadly, they're mostly dead. And sometimes that's true of our worship, and so my hope is as we glean from this passage this morning is that we might move from dead to living worship. The first thing that we see, the first principle that I would say that we need to recognize in this particular passage is that the prerequisite for living worship is understanding our own need for God and what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. In the conversation as we pick it up here, it really is interesting. It can't be separated from the conversation that's gone on before, but the woman is now engaged with Jesus, talking with him, fascinated. She is aware of his knowledge and that he has tremendous insights and answers. And clearly she wants to continue the conversation, and Jesus says to her, it's, it's not a good idea for us to keep standing here talking by ourselves you were with us last week, you realized that it was a scandalous thing that Jesus was doing because he as a Jew wasn't supposed to be talking to a Samaritan. He as a man wasn't supposed to be talking to a woman. And in this particular woman also had a reputation in the town. And so therefore anybody peeking out their windows might begin to wonder who's the new guy she's uh, picking up on and, and who's this guy. 
Now, I don't think that was Jesus' primary motive, but this was the conversation. What we see Jesus doing is, rather than confronting her and condemning her, he's just drawing her out so that she exposes herself all the more, not so that he can slam her down, but so that he can be the means of grace in her life. And so when he says, maybe it's a good idea to go, go get your husband, bring him back, we'll continue this conversation, her response is, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, I can see that you're an honest woman. See, here's the truth. You've had five husbands. And the guy you're living with now, you're not married to him. Now, some may look at this and say, okay, well, what's the big deal? I mean, maybe she just had good genes and outlived five husbands. But we don't see the brokenness of that. And usually somebody who is that much in favor of marriage is going to be married five times and have five successes is not going to settle for simply living with somebody, and she wouldn't have had the reputation she had in that community. He's pointing out her brokenness. Just pointing it out. Drawing it out of her. We don't see her argue. We see an interesting response from her, and I look at this passage and her response in in one of two ways. For most of my life, and in agreement with probably most Bible students, we see her becoming uncomfortable, as any of us are, when somebody's confronted us with our, our sin, our failure to, uh, to conform or to measure up to certain standards. So as we read this interaction, and Jesus is saying facts about her that he really had no way of knowing. She said, sir, I I see you're a prophet. Okay. That's uh, kind of an understatement there. And then she shifts the conversation, it seems, and says, starts talking about religion and sociology and theology. You know, our our ancestors, they worship here, and you Jews say that you should be worshiping in, in Jerusalem. And And so it seems that she is trying to change the subject, which again is understandable when somebody is pressing an issue that would make us uncomfortable. And if that's the case, Jesus is not taking the bait. He takes what she says and then continues on, continuing to focus her attention on what it means to know God and to experience the gift of God's grace in the context of worship. So she takes it to the question of worship. Jesus takes the gospel even deeper. But even as I've traditionally looked at it that way, and I think most people look at it that way, as I've been reading this passage, both over the summer in preparation for the series and this uh, past few weeks in in, uh, preparation for uh, these particular messages, it's begun to strike me that perhaps there is another way that she is responding to Jesus that some of us might also um, recognize as our responses. She has been thoroughly exposed. Her mask has been stripped off of her. There is no pretense that she needs to hold up. She knows, as she says later, this guy knows everything about me. And therefore, no longer having to put up the mask, and in her case, probably a toughness and a shell, and uh, I'm a nice person despite what you might think kind of attitude, sometimes when we've been stripped bare, then what comes out are the deepest longings of our heart. And in her case, it appears to be, despite what we might think of her, that the deepest longing of her heart was to know God and to know what real worship is. 
And she's been confused by all the people that are talking about the different religious theologies and different religious practices. With all those religions out there and all of them disagreeing, how am I supposed to know what the truth is? And since she's already been stripped bare, therefore indicating this guy knows more than most, he's clearly sent from God, then the question that I've always wanted to answer, who better to ask than this guy? But in one sense, it doesn't matter which of those is her responses. We can get either from this conversation. But what we do see quite clearly here is the, the progress of this conversation. What Jesus is doing here is he's drawing out that which is in her, both her brokenness and her longing, and it is being met in him being the one to answer it. See, there's a principle that is we need to understand. Worship is not simply the things that we do for performance, but it is ourselves coming into the presence of the living and true God without pretense and without the sense of performing. G. Campbell Morgan, it's a name that most of you probably don't know. He was one of the greatest preachers in London's history. A couple of generations ago, as he was the minister at the Westminster Chapel, the reason you don't know his name is he had the misfortune from a PR standpoint of ministering in London at the same time as Charles Spurgeon was uh, you know, across town. So nobody ever remembers who's number two. Uh, and so, but he had profound insights and was a tremendous minister. And one of the things that he offers about the whole idea of our worship is this. Listen to what Morgan writes. Worship is not a question of locality. That was what the woman was saying. You know, we worship here, you worship there. It's not a question of intellect. To worship, men must get down to the deepest things in their personality, spirit and truth. They must be honest, and there must be reality by tearing off the masks, compelling you to face your own life before the living and true God. That's what we see taking place here with this woman. And yet I wonder how much of our deadness in worship, how much of our missing experience of God's presence is because we are unaware or we are uncomfortable exposing ourselves before God, coming really, facing the reality of ourselves, being aware and confessing our needs before God. Because if we are unaware, the opportunity for us to experience God's presence as he promises in worship is limited significantly. And so for some of you who wonder why we do this weird confession almost every single week, this is exactly why we want to provide an opportunity for all of us here to be reminded of our need, corporately and individually, so that we can come before God and experience his grace in contrast to our need and brokenness. So the prerequisite that we see in this principle of worship is that we come needing and being aware of our need. The second thing that we see here is that living worship is not about a place, but it's about a person. She's talking about here and there, and here is the question, and, and Jesus makes the statements. A day is coming where it won't matter where you worship. In fact, that day has come, he says. So essentially what Jesus is saying to uh, her and to us, if we were to put it in our context, it doesn't matter whether you worship in Jerusalem or Jakarta or near Jamestown Island. The place, which includes the physical structure 
what it looks like, and any other material external props, none of those are the essence of what worship is. The essence is worship is of the Father. The Father is seeking people. And so the principle of worship that we need to understand is it's not about the place, the props, or even about us. It's about the object of the person of the triune God. The Father is seeking worshipers, and our attention needs to be given to him. So genuine worship is about being aware of ourselves and being aware and turning our attention to the truth of the living and true God. Third thing I think we see in this passage is this, is that living worship is always set in the context of a living history. What I mean by that is this. Most of us understand that our holidays are established so that we will remember significant events or important people that not only are worthy of being remembered, but that therefore, in our remembering, perpetuate certain values, either by reminding us of our failures or pointing us to our our principles. So the 4th of July is a reminder of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, reminding us of our freedom and of our liberty and the values that this country was established on. Martin Luther King holiday is established to remember a man who was a leader and a figurehead of a civil rights movement that points out the fact that we, though having many, many tremendous qualities, were deeply flawed, horrendously flawed flawed in our culture's history as we relate to some of the people who are part of our country. Memorial Day is a holiday that is set aside so that we would remember those who have given their lives to secure all of the promises that this country's founders made for us and the principles by which we live by. And when we remember and celebrate Memorial Day, it's not like we're necessarily going back to war, but we are not only remembering, but we are therefore experiencing and perpetuating what it is that they gave their lives for. And so with that understanding, when we compare the whole principle of worship that I believe that we see here revealed, we need to understand that living worship means that we are never divorced, even here in 2017, from what God has done throughout history. It's his plan of redemption that he began, he secured through time, and then on a very specific day, and then he is continuing to work out that plan. And we see the evidence of this in the conversation that Jesus was having, the woman saying, You worship there, we worship here, we're just not sure. Uh, And Jesus' response to her was, look, you worship what you don't know. And for those of you not familiar with the text, um, her her people only held to the first five books of the Bible. They were kind of a, a mixed bag of religions and still believed in God, but there was a lot that they didn't know. In other words, they even had five, they just didn't know a lot. She knew more than most. So you worship what you don't know, and the Jews worship what they do know because they had the full revelation of God that was recorded for them in all of the Old Testament. And then he makes the additional statement, and we know because salvation is of the Jews. And while that's an affirmation that, therefore, it would make sense that the Jews would know more specifically, there's even more there because that is going to trigger an understanding. That statement is a reminder that the whole issue of salvation came because of a covenant that God had established with a particular people for no other reason that he wanted to establish a relationship with the people and bless every nation and every, uh, every people from every nation through that covenant. 
And what we need to understand with that statement is that there are specific bullet points of, of truth that must be remembered And Jesus is bringing that into the context of worship. When Jesus says salvation comes from the Jews in the context of worship, first of all, we need to remember why was our need for salvation in the first place. Salvation comes through the Jews because man had plunged himself into misery because of our own sin. Our first parents did that. And whether you believe in original sin or not, the fact is all of our lives prove the reality of our sinfulness. The problems that we have in our own lives and the problems we have in our culture and the problems we have in our world are all as a result of man's rebellion and rejection of God. And God, who is holy, could have totally rejected man, wiped us out and started all over. But in his grace and his love, he decided that he wasn't going to do that. He graciously determined to save man and he raised up a people who once were not a people, but he called them, made them through a promise of Abraham. And he made the Jewish people his people and made a promise that he would bless the nations through them. And from that particular tribe of Jewish people, the Messiah would come to save people from every tribe and nation and tongue from their sin. And so Jesus is saying that these things, salvation comes from the Jews, that all of those truths are embodied in that particular statement. And they are historical realities. God entered into a covenant. He raised up a people. He gave, he gave birth to his own son into that people. And that son gave his life on our behalf, paid the price of our sin, redeemed us, reconciled us to our God. And so part of what we do in worship is connected to that living history, to that living covenant. Brian Chapel, the former president of Covenant Seminary, wrote this. However the expression works its way out in a local congregation, this much is clear. Worship must be a week-to-week retelling of the gospel story. Robert Weber, who was a profound uh, teacher of worship, um, passed away. I did have the privilege of taking some doctoral classes with him on worship. He calls worship the dramatization of the gospel story with the centerpiece being the Christ event, which means he's referring to the table, focusing on Christ's death and his resurrection. That is at the heart of our worship. And so worship is connected to those historical realities where it's reenacted, rehearsed, and people are reminded because the blessing that we have, the experiencing God's grace, comes not from some feeling, but from God's promise to be at work through those very historic truths. And he's continuing to be at work in a people he's calling as he reconnects them to that history, as we come to worship and remember that. And so we need to understand that uh, from the beginning to the end, our worship is designed to bring to mind, there is a pattern that can be recognized. We begin with the words of approach that always remind us that God is holy. Song usually reinforces that. We praise God for his holiness. Then we confess that we are not. But then we are reminded of what God's response was to people who had rejected him, who were unholy, who were deserving of condemnation. And that is love in the person of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Not to condemn the world, but that those who believe in him should not die but experience 
eternal life. This is the love of God. And so when we begin our service is always uh, structured that way, no matter how we change the elements up. And then with that assurance, we sing praises to a God for what he has done, which is reconnecting us to this history. Being rooted in that reality, then it only makes sense. God has loved us this way. Of course we can offer our prayers to him. He's promised to hear us. If he's given us his son, what more will he not give us? We give to him ourselves, our gifts, so that others may hear of this. And if he's this awesome and knows this much, then we also want to hear what he has had to say. And so we stand in the extended period listening to his voice through the word. And then regularly we come to this table, all of which is the reenactment, the rehearsal, the declaration of the gospel in the structure of our worship. It is intended to connect us to that historical reality. But Jesus also tells us that living worship must be in spirit. What that means is it's not enough that we go through the motions, but there is a living act of faith that must be at work on our part for us to experience the promises that God has given us. Now, in one sense, we need to recognize that to worship in spirit very definitely means that our emotions should come with us as we worship, and they ought to be expressed. God's not interested in just us getting things done right and saying right things and doing the right things, then checking our time card and then walking out the door. He says, that's not the kind of worship that I will accept. That's a sacrifice, but your heart's not in it. He's not interested in that. He wants the heart. And so therefore, our emotions are part of experiencing worship. But this is where it gets tricky. We're not all wired the same. Some of us are very emotional and very in touch with our feelings. And by saying some of us, I'm just being generous because I would probably not be categorized as one who's included in that. Others of us, you can't tell if we're having a good day or not. But that doesn't mean there's nothing that's going on on the inside. It's just the way that we're wired and the way that we express things. Certain traditions that come from certain backgrounds, they are very expressive in worship. We are referred to often as the frozen chosen, and there's a reason for it. I do appreciate a professor at RTS in Orlando, Steve Brown, who used to be a pastor in the Miami area. He says, he was asked if Presbyterians, why don't Presbyterians raise their hands? And he said, Presbyterians raise their hands? We just never get higher than the belt. Anyway, so. Um, but expressive worship, if that's who you are, is perfectly appropriate. Our emotions, whether they're expressed through gestures or not, and we don't have a problem with that, at least from a rule standpoint here. We do have a problem, apparently, from a practice standpoint, because nobody, uh, but, um, but our emotions are very real. But one of the things that I think becomes a problem is that we gauge whether or not we've experienced God, whether we feel something. And that's a very misguided way of gauging whether God is at work in our midst. Sociologists or psychologists, whoever studies such things, has said that they, they did a study and found that people who go to a rock concert experience the same kind of chemical exuberance as people who are engaged in worship in a megachurch worship service. Now, my point has nothing to do with about size of the church or anything else. My home church, before going to seminary, was a church of 2,500 people, so I have no problem with large churches. It's not about the size of the church, but what it is to say is, if you're gauging on experience, well then, you know, you can go to a Rolling Stones concert and come away thinking that you've worshipped because you're feeling the same feeling you come away from 
certain services when the singing is loud and people are participating. That itself is not the standard of worship. Your emotions are to be engaged, but we need to be very careful by judging worship and spirit only by how I feel by leaving. It's not negated, but it's not the standard. We also need to realize that worship in spirit is referring to another person, to the specific person of the Holy Spirit, who God promises is in the midst of his people when we gather to sing his praises. He dwells within everybody who belongs to him. He is at work in bringing to light the reality of our brokenness and our need so that we can lay it before God only to hear him declare to us not what an idiot you are, But Jesus paid for that. And now I brought it to light so that we can clean that up and you are free and the Holy Spirit is reminding us of the promises of God in our worship and he's at work whether we feel it or not if we're trusting and believing. He's at work. He's promised. He who began a work is continuing to be at work within us. And so it's important that we understand that we should never come to worship. Living worship involves spirit. It's an act of faith. We should never come to worship without expecting God to do something in us. And yet, primary reason many people miss it is they come, put in their time, and they're not expecting anything. And every once in a while, they experience a pleasant surprise. We come to expect God to be at work. Living worship also involves truth. Worship and truth. And that means truth about God and truth about how God wants to be worshiped. John Calvin says this, as worship is encountering God in full awareness of who he is and therefore magnifying his majesty. And I love the definition, but at the same time, I have to confess, I never have yet come to worship with full awareness of who God is. I hope I'm coming with an increasing awareness of who God is. And maybe Calvin just overstated it a little bit, or maybe it's just the evidence of how much more spiritual he is than I am, but the point is still true. We come and turn our attention to the truth of who God is, and that is recorded for us in this book. This is his word. He spoke it. He described himself for us. And so when we sing and pray and preach, we declare truth about God. If we declare what we feel about God, that is not necessarily the same thing. Our feelings are erratic. Truth is eternal. But worship and truth also means we worship the way that God wants us to worship, and he has not been silent about that, as this passage is evidence to us. And there are many others. See, in many traditions, people come and say, well, what are we going to do today? And the focus is, what can we do to make people feel entertained enough that they'll come back or feel the emotions? I'm not suggesting everything that is done is wrong, but, you know, I know of churches where the pastor will throw himself up against the, you know, the wall with a, you know, Velcro suit just to get attention. I have yet to find that example and pattern in Scripture. But God has given us very specific statements throughout the Old Testament, precise statements of what worship is. Jesus kind of, I won't say lightens up, but broadens the reality to the specific prescription to the principles in our worship, but they have not changed. And to worship God in a way that he's accept makes sense that we would worship in the way that he said he wants to be worshipped. That's how he's honored. Our reformed tradition, we call that the regulative principle, which always sounds so incredibly oppressive to me. But the reality is, it keeps us from scratching our head and saying, I wonder what we can do. 
I wonder if God accepted this. I wonder if we can please God. The fact that worship is to spirit and in truth, we engage all that we are in our heart, and we also are shaped by the truth as he has revealed it. And our intention in our worship is not to just take some things that we know that God has said are okay, but to try to give to him as much of what he says brings him pleasure as we can so that we worship in spirit and in truth. And the last thing that we need to see which will bring us to this table is this. Living worship always leads us into an encounter and our relationship with the living Lord. Jesus declares himself to be the worthy object of our worship in this encounter. We read over it. It might be easy to miss, but I don't know if you saw it. Jesus makes a revelation of himself here that he has yet to disclose clearly to his disciples, and he is not told to those who are his critics or to any other religious leaders. See, the woman in this conversation apparently was kind of getting her head filled up a little bit much and so was feeling a little dizzy. She's looking forward to going and getting her husband so she can just kind of process this and get some fresh air. And we see that evidence when she says, okay, and this I do think is sort of dismissive, and yet she's still hungry. Um, We know Messiah is coming, and so when he comes, he'll tell us all this stuff. And Jesus says, I, who am speaking to you, am he. Now, if anybody ever tells you that Jesus never makes a declaration that he is God, that he is the Messiah, they have not read their Bible at all. I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever. So, for instance, if I was, uh, had heard of the Steve Tewksbury guy, and I start describing what I've heard of him, certainly inadequate for certain things, and I'm talking to him while I'm describing him, and he says, I am he, I think he's making a pretty clear statement of being the embodiment of what I was talking about, right? There is no way we would be able to say he's not making a statement. Now, all of us have to come to the conclusion whether we believe that to be true. But Jesus very clearly is saying, I am the Messiah. And this woman, because of the encounter, and we have able to look into that, now judge based on his knowledge, his passion, his holiness, his wisdom, all of those things. Is it true? And she goes back and calls all the people and says, could he be the Messiah? Jesus says, he is the Messiah. And so therefore, being God, worthy of worship, and he's calling people back so that they would recognize him. We recognize Jesus as identifying himself as a worthy recipient of our worship, and he is the focal point of our worship. Because living worship is not uh, real, is not genuine, unless it leads us to the resurrected Christ. Because that's the connected history as well. It leads us not just to the history, but to the person of Jesus Christ. And worship comes when we exposed ourselves, come into the presence of the holy and true God, knowing that we are in need and in receiving all of the promises that are ours in 